0: from yesterday had some questions regarding the distribution of the voltage gated channels specifically just a reminder with regards to the myelinated axon the potassium channels or the voltage gated potassium channels so here we have these boxes on this side and that was supposed to indicate to you our nodal sorry, our paranodal areas, and then in the lighter blue, our juxtaparanodal areas or regions. And this is where we find our voltage-gated potassium channels. And incidentally, when there's demyelination, demyelination actually occurs more from this end in, in the early stages, if that makes sense. So these voltage-gated channels become exposed. And again, hopefully, with this happening, you can see or understand why our propagation of action potential is disrupted. And actually, if the situation continues with regards to demyelination, we have a conduction block. Louder. Ralph, can you help me with that? It's a bit closer to Is that any louder? Yeah, excellent. Thank you. All right. Neurotransmitters and synaptic transmission number 1 is the session today. Our copyrights, our lecture objectives. So I'm hoping that you have watched your video material, so I've highlighted in the presentation where you should have watched your little recordings. Yes, there was a lot, but they were only about two, most of them were only about two minutes each, so it shouldn't have taken a lot of your time. Two of those videos were about six minutes. Assigned reading, the essential neuroscience text, Chapter 7, and a question to open up. Should be an easy question for you to get that attendance. I'll give you ten more seconds just to make sure that our timer is working. All right, let's see if the time is on here. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to close the poll because there's not a lot of increase in responses good. 75% of you going for the activation of voltage-gated sodium channels. So we're thinking of our action potential and that first rise, the rising phase in our action potential is due to the opening or activation of our voltage-gated sodium channels. Something else to note: uh, one of the clicker questions, where we were discussing treatment of our neuralgia, glossopharyngeal neuralgia, yesterday. So, I had some questions regarding, you know, as to whether, you know, why we were using the anti-epileptics as an initial treatment, and that's a very good question, and it's it's nice to see that you are already thinking of your patients and you know how you administer your treatment, what treatment you should give. So I discussed further with my colleagues, and indeed you would go ahead and give them the anti-epileptic treatments initially. Essentially, in our question, the patient was diagnosed with the glossopharyngeal neuralgia. So a diagnosis was already made and you wanna think about your patient is coming in pain. Yeah? So you wanna do the best that you can for them. Even in some instances, if you think like you know, a lot of people, for example, if if it was a, a morphine prescription they were coming for. Yeah? And you're wondering if they're abuse if they're abusing the medication because they're coming so regularly. So you may wanna give them Uh, They'll come and ask, oh, doc, can I have 30-day supply? I I really need it. I'm in a lot of pain, and you're suspicious. Maybe you give them a few days' supply, and in those few days, you make some background checks and put um, things in place to see if the patient is indeed abusing the medication. But they've come to you and said that they're in pain, and you do need to give them the pain medication and in our case, because we had hyperexcitability, we wanted to have a good medication to dampen down the, action pote- the excitable or extra action potentials that were taking place. So we wanted a good block of our voltage-gated sodium channels. So for this morning, we want to describe our morphological and functional characteristics of our various types of synapses. So the first one to think about is our, our, our electrical synapses. They're made up of units, and our units are called connexons up here, and they are hemispheric channels. We find, so you find one half of the hemispheric channel on the presynaptic terminal, and another portion on the postsynaptic terminal and essentially they meet fuse, or joining the two cytoplasms and then there can be flow of uh, well electricity essentially through that channel the flow is generally unidirectional but it can be bidirectional and I suspect you're familiar with electrical synapses so our gap junctions when, we, when you think about your heart or smooth muscle. With regards to the nervous system, we alluded to gap junction function when we spoke about our astrocytes and their typh- siphoning capabilities, so our potassium and calcium, potassium siphoning and our calcium waves. So we had communication there. Some neurons also use gap junctions. So they're formed, as we said, the opposed connections. Each connexion is made up of, sorry, each connexion has six connexins. So each of these little units here, the hemichannel, six connexins, and then form our four membrane, those form our four membrane spanning units. Again, in the nervous system, gap junctions play a role in our Schwann cells. So you may come across a disorder when you go on to your neurodevelopmental section related to Mari Charcot tooth, which is a demyelination, demyelinating disorder, and genetic uh, changes in these channels can lead to demyelination and Mari Charcot tooth. Our chemical synapses, so these are most common And the most common way that we have our communication with our neurons So we have again presynaptic and postsynaptic contact So the two boutons here meeting at the synaptic cleft Where our chemical is released and has to bind to our postsynaptic receptor To give us that important response so in doing so, we need, as I say, we need to release our chemical messenger, and there needs to be a, an excyth- exocytosis process taking place to release the neurotransmitter. What kinds of synapses can we make? So we already said, we have our usually, we have the two boutons meeting, and then the synaptic cleft. However. If we have different types of synapses, we can have different types of responses. Listed here, we have various types of synapses. So axodendritic, axoaxonic, and axosomatic. So they're all named accordingly, nice and easy for you to work out who's making the connections. So axo meaning the axon is connecting to some portion, is it connecting to the dendrite, is it connecting to another axon, or is it connecting to the soma? Axodendritic connections are commonly excitatory, so some kind of excitatory response usually takes place, but this depends upon Where along the dendrite the axon is making its synapse So if it's more distal, you will have an excitation But if it's more proximal, you will find you'll have a more um, More likely to have an inhibitory response And that makes sense because as I said yesterday And as you know with everything to do well with the body Or in life in general, you have a start signal and a stop signal Okay? So, in order to keep tight control, the stop signals are closer to the soma. Axoaxonic, so our second diagram here, and these are commonly inhibitory. So, we want to take a close look at our axoaxonic connection, and what we find is so we have our three neurons. Neuron three up here, Neuron 1 and neuron 2. So neuron 3 and neuron 1 are making connection with neuron 2 or or affecting the uh, excitation of neuron 2. So we have an inhibitory response because neuron 1 actually inhibits the release of transmitter from neuron 3 and this diminishes the magnitude of the action potential or the response that we will get or the resulting response shall we say from neuron 2 so we're calling it it's axoaxonic so it's a, these two axons are making contact here which is affecting the response from The neuron that they are connecting to Axosomatic Essentially the axon is making now direct contact with the soma And there's no interference from any other axon And this again would commonly result in some kind of inhibition With regards to our ability to produce an action potential Again, our chemical synapses, and we kind of alluded to this kind of interaction when we spoke about our astrocytes. So here we see again a presynaptic, postsynaptic neurons, and astrocytes also taking part here. Remember, they are trying to control the levels of ions or levels of uh, potassium, calcium within the medium so that we don't have excitotoxicity, and this is what we call our tripartite, tripartite synapse. So I spoke about potassium and calcium. They're also able to reuptake neurotransmitters such as glutamate, break it down to glutamine, and this glutamine can then be recycled to make more glutamate. So, this was in one of our videos. So all this, um, all the slides are in the presentation, available to you in the PDF. And anything that has a colour to the slide was posted to Panopto. So let's have a question. So you should have been able to glean this information from your Panopto video. Ten more seconds. And one. Okay. So 76% of you, excellent. It stimulates soluble guanylate cyclase. And we can see that here in our image. So again, as I say, this was in your Panopto videos. Our objectives cover the synthesis of our neurotransmitters in a general fashion. So if whether they are high molecular weight or low molecular weight, how like what takes place and how they synthesized and how are they packaged. We need to load everything into vesicles and we need to exocytose our vesicles. So when our vesicle our vesicles are stored in the terminal and they're actually tethered to the terminal cytoskeleton with synapsin. And when we have our depolarization and our influx of calcium through the voltage-gated calcium channels, we can now activate our calcium calmodulin-dependent protein kinase, which can cleave this connection. The vesicle is released. The rab proteins help facilitate its movement to the well, the terminal end—it's it, called the uh, the active zone. So priming everything, or priming the vesicle for release to, for exos- exocytosis. We have a group of proteins called snare proteins. If they are attached to the vesicle, they are simply called V-snares, and if it's tethered to the terminal, then T-snares. So not necessarily expecting you. To be able to rattle off, is it synaptobrevin or syntaxin or synaptotagmin? Just going to simply go with v snes and t snes and these form a complex. And as I say, with the help of our uh, increased intracellular calcium, we have fusion, and the pore. Fu- we have a fusion pore formed, and exocytosis takes place. So once it's docked here, the vesicle is pulled closer to the presynaptic membrane. And we just show this here again. As I said, just to reinforce, it's our voltage-gated calcium channels. We have an increase in our intracellular calcium levels And this allows us to liberate our vesicles. And our calcium importantly uh, phosphorylates our synapsin, so that's how we can have our release for it to, to be able to reach the docking area. We need to retrieve our vesicles, so, vesicles are reusable. The small clear vesicles they stay in the terminal area and the large dense core vesicles are needed we need to transport them retrogradely back to the soma. Do we remember our motor proteins that are involved? So which motor protein would be involved in ferrying our large dense core vesicles? in excellent. For our retrograde Transport and for transport of everything from the soma to the terminal, we want kinesin. Question. give you 10 more seconds 2 1 oh there's a clock anyway we all clicked in all right so i'm going to close the poll oh one more anybody else All right, closing the poll. All right, scatter of responses. So we have a case of a pulmonary tumor. During the course of the illness, the 61-year-old man starts to develop bilateral muscular weakness. So when he does some repetitive movements, he's squeezing the clinician's finger, the muscle contraction is initially minimal, but with repeated efforts he regains some strength. So you'll be discussing we'll be going into this a bit more um, in the motor component. Here we're just trying to, trying to see if you recall what's happening at the level of the um, channels. So among a therapeutic approach, the patient receives a Potassium channel blocking agent. So what would happen to our action potential if you give a potassium channel blocking agent? You're going to... What did somebody say about repolarization? Repent... Prevent... Repolaris- De repolarization, yes, so that hyperpolarization that takes place usually with uh, potassium. So are we going to well, do we have anything to do with axonal conduction in this case? So I think we can rule out speeds- up action condu- um, conduction, so C and D. We're going to think about whether we enhance our transmitter release suppress it, increase it, or decrease it. So we've said that we are going to stop that uh, repolarization. So our channels are open for longer. So of course we're going to enhance our transmitter release. It's nothing to do with the synthesis of our transmitter simply to do with our release of our transmitter. And in this case, because he had a pulmonary tumor, I don't know if you've heard of something called Lambert-Eaton syndrome. You're gonna hear a bit more about it as you go through into the specific motor component of the neuroscience course. Um, so you'll think a bit about, more about it there. I'm not expecting you to know that it's Lambert-Eaton. The question was more related to what's going on at the channel. So in this case there are antibodies against the voltage-gated calcium channels and that's why we give this drug. Next question. So ten more seconds. You should be able to get this one. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Okay. Split decision. Does it prolong? So prolong our action potential, okay, but do we increase influx of sodium or do we increase our influx of calcium? So we increase our influx of calcium. So remember it's calcium is very important for our exocytosis. So we need to have enough intracellular calcium to release uh, the connection between our cytoskeleton with the, ve- the vesicle via synapsin. We also need increased levels of calcium to be able to now fuse the vesicle with the terminal membrane. Let's think about the basic properties of our receptors. And have some differentiation between inotropic and metabotropic receptors. So inotropic essentially you bind to the channel and the channel opens and closes. So there's a conformational change. And here we have an example. We're going to talk a bit about we're going to talk more about NMDA in a second, but because it's here, we might as well. So NMDA is a glutamate receptor. It's inotropic. Glutamate binds, but for, and there's also an antagonist site. But for this receptor, you also need a few more things to take place before the channel can open and allow our flow of calcium and sodium through. There needs to be depolarization. And with our depolarization we remove our magnesium. So magnesium actually acts as a block. So you can you have the conformational change, but you're still not going to get a flow of ions if there is no depolarization. There's also a receptor here called strychnine insensitive glycine binding site. So glycine combined here and we'll talk a bit more about that in a second. But just to know that Strychnine doesn't affect this binding site That's why it's called strychnine insensitive There are metapotropic receptors And these are, um, have slower effects than our ionotropic receptors More related to our metabolic processes So our uh, um, G-protein coupled responses, essentially So conformational change and uh, our GTP uh, changes in our alpha, beta, and gamma subunits and leading to our met- metabolic changes. Synthesis and removal of acetylcholine. Question. Okay, 10 seconds. Five. Okay. Mixture of responses. So essentially, this case, again, getting you ready for your uh, motor sessions. This is a case of uh, multiple sclerosis No, sorry, myasthenia gravis We have our tens- tensilon test So we have our autoimmune response To our uh, Nicotinic acetylcholine Receptor So I, may, I, I was hoping, Trying to make it pretty easy for you I didn't give you any choices that were related To any other neurotransmitters All acetylcholine uh, receptor-based choices, but the precursor is choline. Remember, the choline is. Let's go back. So choline here is taken back up by the choline tran- choline sodium transporter, and it's used as the precursor. So it, when it um, together with the enzyme forms our acetylcholine, which is inserted into. The vesicle Our projections So we need to think about our projections And where do they go So binding We generally see some kind of excitatory effect So we have our basal forebrain constellation here And we have a dorsolateral pontine tegmental Constellation over here. So the dorsolateral constellation we can think of as having uh, communications or control related to essentially motor control and movement when we think of these fibers. And we see processes traveling into the cerebellum, down the pons, medulla. Over here, our basal forebrain constellation, we see centrally, so we see some centrally, central fibers running through the cortex and into our limbic system. And if we think about degenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's, these are where these fibers are affected. So our basal, so starting from a basal um, nucleus of minute very important with regards to alzheimer's easy peasy where are you paying attention Ten seconds. Three, two, one. So, oh, only 50%. The patient clearly, they were diagnosed with Alzheimer's. We're having a look at some brain slices from the brain bank. Which area is going to be de- degenerated? We just discussed the basal nucleus of myonet. Substantia nigra, we're going to think of Parkinson's disease. We're going to get there in a second. Raphae, magnus and locus coeruleus are related to our catecholamines. But it's the basal nucleus of myonet re- related to our release of acetylcholine. So that's what I was getting at there. So, we can have lower motor neurons releasing acetylcholine, and they'll be binding to our nicotinic receptor, our somatic muscle. So, these are our peripheral cholinergic neurons. And we need to note that when, we, when the neuron travels between or from the central nervous system to the peripheral nervous system, there is a change in our myelin. Coverings, yes? So you need to appreciate that when you have that transition, you're going to change from your oligos to your Schwann cells, and vice versa as you make that transition between the two areas or the two zones. Again, another, so we have our uh, autonomic system here, our preganglionic neuron, our postganglionic neuron. Here we have our ionotropic receptor binding. So between our preganglionic neuron, it makes contact with a with ionotropic. Acetylcholine binds to ionotropic receptors on the postganglionic neuron. However, we note that even though it's acetylcholine that's going to be released that we're releasing in this instance onto onto our uh, visceral these bind to metabotropic receptors. So acetylcholine release, however, binding to one or the other of our types of channel. So our receptors, as we just said, we have our nicotinic receptors and our muscarinic receptors, nicotinic being just the basic channel pore conformational change, and ions can flow through muscarinic Are metabotropic, using our G-proteins. And a lot of the time we'll have various subtypes. In this case, there are, well, at this time, or at the time of doing this slide, five types. When we bind to our metabotropic receptor, we have some excitatory responses, and we can have some inhibitory responses. So regardless of the fact that I said, for centrally, we were looking at excitation for the most part, we need to be mindful that when we have metabotropic binding, we can have excitation or inhibition. Our amino acid transmitters now are glutamate, so how we make glutamate, the pathway. Essentially, there are a lot of nuclei and projections um, for glutamate, and that's why it's pretty essential that we control our glutamate release into our central nervous system, remembering our exocy- exocytotoxic effects morphologically and functionally varied. So they're everywhere. Glutamate binds to, we have a couple of receptors here. So we have AMPA and kainate receptors and we have our NMDA receptor. So when we bind to our AMPA receptor or AMPA and kainate, we allow sodium in and potassium out. So only those two ions are allowed to flow, with regards to binding of glutamate to the AMPA and kainate receptors. However, when we bind to the NMDA receptor, we can have flow of sodium and calcium in and potassium in the other direction and as we discussed previously there needs to be depolarization to remove this magnesium block and we have removal yes, so glutamate binding and um, removal of our magnesium block and then we're able to open that receptor There are three groups, one, two, three, and as I said, a lot of the time there's many different channels found and labeled. So in our three groups, we have one and five, and we we'll just split them into what's happening. Uh, are we expecting binding to cause some kind of excitation or will binding to the receptor cause an inhibition? So if you're in group one, you're expecting it's likely that there'll be some excitation. But if there's binding to group 2 or 3 metabotropic glutamate receptors, you'll find inhibition, and these types of receptors are found on our auto-receptors. So what are our auto-receptors? So there are negative feedback responses, in essence. So we have our neurotransmitter here being released. Ready to bind to our postsynaptic neuron, binding to the, the receptors on the dendrite. But what happens is the autoreceptor is over here, and binding to the autoreceptor will inhibit further release of the neurotransmitter. Counterpart uh, GABA. So GABA. Again, we have uh, ubiquitous representation. So our nuclei and projections, they're usually smaller. So a lot of our GABA, these will be our interneurons. So the small ones will be our interneurons. There are some longer GABAergic pathways, and these will arise from various nuclei. So, what happens with GABA? When you open the channel, you actually get flow of our chloride ions. If you now bind drugs such as benzodiazepines or barbiturates, you can change the efficiency of the channel. So, benzodiazepines alone won't cause the channel to open. They work in conjunction with GABA to make the flow of chloride more efficient, so more opening, more flow of chloride. Barbiturates alone, however, can open the channel, and together, again, if you have GABA present, you're going to increase that efficiency. So the difference between benzodiazepines and barbiturates with regards to binding to the GABA channel, specifically our GABA A channel in relation to our chloride currents is that benzodiazepines alone will not allow any chloride current. GABA needs to be present, but the barbiturates are able to do this. GABA B, acting through our second messenger system so metabotropic, and here we have an axoaxonic synapse. So release of GABA to a GABA-B receptor here increases potassium efflux, deca- decreases a calcium influx, and this, hopefully you can see, will cause us to have decreased transmitter release question. 10 seconds. So in this patient, we want to reduce our anxiety. We just spoke about our NMDA receptors What do we want to do? We want a benzodiazepine receptor agonist because we want to increase that flow of chloride to help reduce the excitability in this patient that is occurring as they're anxious. If you use an NMDA agonist, well, you're only going to um, exacerbate the situation and cause excitotoxicity, an antagonist, well, we, you'll have anesthetic effects. Barbiturate receptor agonist, you'll essentially cause the patient to be uh, knocked out and non responsive. And our benzodiazepine uh, receptor antagonists, well, they're not going to be um, effective either because then you will actually block the response that you really want in this patient. So here, just showing our anxiolytics, and again, because our binding of our benzodiazepine increased chloride uh, flow in the presence of GABA. Glycine synthesis was discussed in the videos and just have a look at the nucleic uh, projections. So these neurons tend to be small, local regulators. And we see here that we have our alpha motor neuron making our connection with our somatic muscle. There's a control mechanism where acetylcholine is also released on this interneuron here, a Renshaw cell and our glycine combined to the alpha motor neuron, inhibiting further release of acetylcholine. And this was why I specifically mentioned when we previously said we have a we had a strychnine um, insensitive glycine receptor. Here is where strychnine comes into play. It binds to the it can bind to this glycine receptor. So, strychnine is a pesticide, and it's a favorite uh, of the older murder mysteries, always used by of Murder Mysteries of Agatha Christie, using strychnine to poison someone. And essentially, we block the inhibition of our alpha motor neuron, and the person goes into rigor and dies. Our receptors are structurally, functionally. Um, similar to our gaba receptors, chloride conduction, and as I said, blocked by strychnine. Our catecholamines, previously discussed in the panopto. What are our projections? So are important here nuclei at the level of the substantia nigra, so we can think of our Parkinson's disease in this level, and we're, we're at the level of the midbrain. That's very important. Our ventral tegmental area down here, giving projections. So our uh, mesocortical projections, and we also have some mesolimbic projections. And so our mesolimbic, we think of them in in relation to schizophrenia, so increased release of dopamine has been indicated in schizophrenia coming from these, um, along these connections. The mesocortical pathway is also indicated in psychosis. So there we have our control of our motivation and our emotional responses, appropriate emotional responses. Our ventrotegmental nucleus or area also makes a connection with our nucleus accumbens and dopamine release onto this area. This is essentially our happy center, so increased dopamine levels. Anything that makes us happy leads us to have increased um, release of dopamine onto this region, and this can help us understand why drug addicts continue to take Certain drugs, such as cocaine, so in cocaine addicts, we see uh, increased levels of dopamine in this region. So there's emotional in- enforcement via our limbic structures in, um, with regard to this region, and of course the drug addict will continue to take the drugs. Oh, let's just go back. Um, an important one again: our hypothalamic arcuate nucleus, and you've all heard about uh, the inhibitory effect on our prolactin. They are metabotropic receptors, and we have our various types. Another catecholamine: norepinephrine. Question. Ten seconds and one. So, which of the following statements is true for our norepinephrine? Yes. The removal is removal from the synaptic cleft is via reuptake. Tyrosine is not the immediate precursor. That would be at the start of the chain. Our, we have our rate-limiting step between thy- tyrosine and the production of dopamine, and then we can subsequently make our norepinephrine epinephrine. Parkinson's, well, we discussed its dopamine, not norepinephrine, synthesized. In, so we have our dopamine and enzyme together in the vesicle pro- to produce our norepinephrine, not in the neuronal terminal. Our nucleic projections, important one, are locus ceruleus, indicated in depression. So in depressive states, we have reduced norepinephrine, and we have sub- linked to our uh, monoamine uh, depression theory. So we include 5-HT levels in this, which we're going to talk about. Just go through 5-HT in a second. 5-HT is indicated in depression as well. So low levels in, in this pathway or in these projections, we can have depression. We also have uh, some pain regulation. So we have fibers from the, uh, the raphae going down the spinal cord to the Nucleus tractus solitarius, and we can inhibit our pain signals there. Again, these are metabotropic receptors. Our 5HT, so these are our indolamines. We have raphe nuclei projections again, taking part in pain processing. And we have our mesocephalic uh, and pontine nuclear projections. So going to our thalamus, thalamus and limbic areas. As I said, decreased levels uh, indicated in depression. The medullary raphae magnus nucleus for our pain regulation. So these guys here, obviously we have links with... so. Connections with our limbic system affecting our emotional state. Large family of receptors, various subtypes, metabotropic again. give 10 seconds I'm gonna close the poll so hopefully we discussed it's Parkinson's disease so you should have gone for midbrain we discussed Yes. Do you want to go for a break now and come back, or this this is the last slide? Take your break. Okay. All right. Finish it. <laughs> so our pain processes very quickly. We have our pain sensation here. We have our opiate receptors, as I mentioned already, descending fibers releasing our norepinephrine and serotonin, these synapse with our interneurons, which can release our endorphins. So once our endorphins are released, they bind to these opiate receptors, and therefore we can reduce our pain, pain sensation in this way. So these are our endogenous opiates. And that's it.